was always a staple. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I would love for you to turn to the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 6 today. I want to give you a little picture of what we're doing this year in um, my sermons and our focus as a church. I'm preaching through specific passages, some from Acts, but eventually in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. I want us to focus this year on what does God want to do with our church? Where does he want to take us? I believe that God wants us to think and consider the future of our church, what it looks like, where we're going, um, and we want to do it according to his word, which is why I'm going to kind of spend some time specifically preaching out of particular passages that are about the church. So, in light of that, I'm skipping chapter 5. I know y'all, I, I hate doing it too because I really like preaching through books and I know y'all are used to that after five years of preaching through books. But let me give you a little summary of, of chapter 5 because it does support what we're going to see in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Um, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5 is judgment on sin in the church. <laughs> um, Ananias and Sapphira lie to God and he kills them. So don't do that. All right, there's lesson number one from that chapter. Uh, the church is respected by all people. It's admired, it's favored by the people. Even the ones who aren't believing in Jesus, they're, they're respecting the church, they're staying clear. The apostles are working signs, and the church is growing. That's a key theme in, this, in these first chapters of Acts. Well, then in the next sections, verses 17 through 24 of chapter 5, the apostles are arrested. They're all arrested, all 12 of them, taken to prison put in a prison way back in the deep bowels of the dungeon, if you will. And then God releases them miraculously. And they go back to preaching. They go back to the temple and begin preaching. And that's, that's a miracle in itself. And then the Sanhedrin wants to ask them some questions. So they politely asked the apostles if they would come back, come back uh, to the uh, Sanhedrin the next day and explain what they're doing. And they're really upset about the fact that they're preaching the resurrection again, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But Gamaliel, a smart and wise teacher at that time, one that they all trusted. I don't know how wise he was, but he just kind of told them, hey, if this is of God, you won't win. If it's not of God, it'll peter out. And so that was his advice. They decided to take it. So they flogged, they whipped the apostles. All 12 of them got a whipping. I don't think it was with the same device that Jesus was flogged with um, that rips and tears your, your skin and hide because I don't think they were allowed to do that as the Jews. I think the Romans were the only ones that were allowed to use that device. But they are flogged and they go back to the church and they rejoice. They're praising God that they got whipped for the gospel. And then they preach again. <laughs> they preach again. And souls are saved and the church grows. And that gets you through chapter 5 real quick. I know you probably wish most of my sermons were that short. But we're going to now see what happens in the church when a little problem comes along. You know, these sound like problems. And in most of us's life, it would be a problem. But this little problem that happens inside the church is one that's got a lot of potential to really cause some problems. So let me follow along as I read Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. 
but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Well, this proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number. And a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for this insight. And I pray, God, that we can in our own hearts this morning apply what you have shown us in this passage. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So the first church, they had faced persecution, they had faced ridicule, they had faced orders, they had even faced sin in their midst when Ananias and Sapphira. But, but now a more subtle problem emerges, a complaint. <laughs> Here's the complaint department. Every church will face internal complaints. It's, a, it's, it's known to happen and will happen everywhere. Every church has complaints. Some are valid, some may not be. We can spend a whole another sermon on that. But every church will face internal complaints, and they must be handled, though, with a spiritual focus and spiritual sensitivity. We need that. We need to, we need to remember, realize we don't handle problems like the world does. The first church and the apostles, they applied three spiritual disciplines to the problem and kept harvesting souls. That's how they, this very large, by the way, very large at this point, multiple thousand-member church, that's how they handled the problem. They resolved this discrepancy, which was along, by the way, ethnic lines. The first church, they, they applied three spiritual disciplines. So let's read kind of the, the spiritual wisdom that we see here. First of all, let's identify the problem. In the second half of verse 1, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution the twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can, count, who we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So you see the problem there? It sounds like a simple problem, right? Just some widows were accidentally overlooked for, for a, the daily distribution and most likely food, or at least the funds to buy food. It's a complaint, though, by one faction of uh, the church against another. It's accusatory. They're accusing, but it's not really meant to be uh, an intentional error. But let me, let me help you understand. The widows were being overlooked. They were actually being neglected. The, the Hellenistic widows... The Greek-speaking widows, that's who, who, how we're going to separate them this morning, they were being overlooked, they were being forgotten in the daily distribution of food. And so it seems like a simple problem. Well, let's just take care of it. But I want you to notice that there's ethnic, ethnicities here, okay? The Hellenistic Jews were Greek-speaking, Roman-raised, Roman-culture Jews. They were still Jews. They were descendants of Abraham. They were ones that had been raised, though, in the culture of the Greek Empire and now the Roman Empire. They had been raised in that culture and they spoke Greek. And these two groups were forced to live together. The, the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenists, they were forced to live together by the imperial actions of Rome. But they didn't necessarily like each other. First of all, 
they were, like I said, they were both of Jewish descent. They were both Abraham's children. But one group being raised in the Greek and Roman culture, the other group thought, saw them as traitors, saw them as, you know, fakers, not real Jews. The other group was raised in the, the Palestine, Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee area where they, they saw themselves as true believers or the true Israelites. There was this racism, if you want to call it, but it really wasn't racism. It was more like an ethnic discrepancy. So in most places in Palestine in the first century and even before, animosity and prejudice put these two at odds with each other in most other places. But in the church, they had been getting along quite well. At this point, it's estimated that the church in Jerusalem was probably 10,000, maybe 20,000 people counting women and children because of how much people had been coming to Christ. They had been working out pretty good together until now, and now the fireworks could possibly begin. But there was a complaint, so there was a complaint. Now, they're not saying, the apostles are not saying, well, I want you to first to see the wisdom of the 12 apostles. Their solution, their solution starts with a focus on God's word. See, we shouldn't give up weight, our study of God's word for helping people get their food. That's just not our, our role. I mean, Psalms 119 makes it very important as we've been working through it, that God's word's important, makes it very pointed, that God's word is important. But now the disciples weren't saying that helping people get their food was a, a task beneath them. It just wasn't the role that Christ had given them. And so they, they, they knew it was important. There wasn't sarcasm there when they said wait on tables. Actually, that word could actually mean distribute or manage a bank. That's the same words are kind of working the same way in the Greek. So preaching and proclaiming and explaining God's word is needed in every and any generation, any time, right? So they knew they needed to focus on God's word. But they come up with a solution. They offered a solution. They proposed a solution to this multi-thousand member church. They, they made it clear. And it was, it was very wise. They used, first of all, they used church polity or church government. They said, you pick... Seven guys. You pick seven guys with good reputations, not good reputations in the community out there, good reputations in the church. How are they behaving? How are they treating fellow church members? How have they been treating people from a different ethnic group in this case? Make sure they're full of the Spirit. Make sure they're full of wisdom. You choose those. It's not a popularity contest. It's a spiritual contest. Who's, who's actually... Dis um, displaying spiritual traits and spiritual disciplines. So after these seven were chosen, the apostles will appoint them to handle these critical needs. See, the apostles weren't playing down the fact that people needed food. They just were going to delegate it, and these seven will manage the distribution. Understand, these seven guys did not go and hand out food to this tens of thousands of people. They managed it. They made sure that distributions were happening to everybody especially the Greek-speaking widows. So the apostles will confirm their selections, to discern, discern their qualifications, and set them in place. That was the plan. The apostles will continue then devoting their energy, their time, to the ministry of God's word and prayer to God, which was very, very, very necessary. Think about all that they've just gone through, the Ananias and Sapphira, the flogging, the, the persecutions. The being, they needed God's word to become more and more alive to them. They needed prayer. It was very important. So 
I want you to see the spiritual wisdom here. They didn't just, just tell them, hey, it's, a, it's your problem, you deal with it. They didn't take it and just try to come up with some secular way of doing it. They stopped through their prayer, through their study of God's word. They found a solution. And they said, do this. Spiritual wisdom from their prayer and study, it spoke up here. The roles were maintained, the apostles' role and then the church's role was maintained and, and the tasks were delegated. And we do that still to this day. Spiritual wisdom involved the whole church, not just the apostles. They didn't get to make the decisions and, and, and basically be tyrants or dictated to everybody. It was a whole church experience. The priority, though, was always given to God's word and prayer, which we need to do. And the spiritual wisdom offered a solution with no hidden agendas, no hidden agendas, only peace and unity was sought in their solution. Nobody was trying to gain any advantage. So their spiritual wisdom was used here. And I want to explore wisdom for a little bit here. <clears throat> a lot of times you hear people describe wisdom as it's something it, you learn from experience. Or as I was told, it's something you learn from other people's mistakes. That's wisdom. But that's not really God's wisdom. That's really not. That's human wisdom. And, and yes, I have learned a lot from other people's mistakes, and I've definitely learned a lot from mine. But, but God's wisdom, spiritual wisdom, is given by God. It's not something you necessarily can, can, can experience and, and earn on your own. Real spiritual wisdom actually starts with God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That's in Psalms 111.10. It's in Proverbs 1.7. In Proverbs 9.10, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. True wisdom starts by respecting God as who God is. If you don't put God in the right place, your wisdom is not spiritual wisdom. It contains qualities found only in God and those who have received his son, Jesus Christ, as their Lord and Savior and have the Holy Spirit living in them, the church. That's where wisdom resides. But James even gives us more in this what our wisdom should look like and what it, how it comes from. It comes from above. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure. Pure, <laughs> not self-seeking. This, the wisdom from above is peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, and this is a very important one, without pretense, without your own agenda driving it. That's where wisdom comes from. That's what wisdom is. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. James 3, 17. There's nothing in that definition about age, about experiences, about failures. There's nothing in there about that. It's talking about where it comes from, and it comes from God. And only those qualities can come from someone who has the Holy Spirit living inside them. So we need to see these qualities in the church and the apostles as they handled this situation. And we do see it. Both of them had it. And the question we need to constantly be asking ourselves is, do we have those qualities? Wisdom requires a very careful study of God's word, which is what the apostles made the point of. It requires persistent prayer. Ask God for wisdom. James even talks about that in chapter one. Ask God for wisdom. Meditate on God's word. It will give you wisdom. And have a respect for God's ways. The beginning, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That's what our, where our wisdom comes from. So many times, so many times, earthly wisdom is applied to spiritual problems in a church. So many times. 
And disaster usually results. Usually because some people think it's experience that dictates wisdom, it's age that dictates wisdom. Here's an example, church structure. So many times in our past probably 50 years, people have saw a, a great business organizational structure out there and they've come in and they've tried to enforce it in a church. You know what? God has given us his structure for the church and that's what we're going to get to this year. We're going to talk about the structure of our church and what it looks like. And it's got to be according to God's word. That's one place where secular wisdom, the wisdom out there, doesn't help us at all as a church. How about using our funds and our resources? So many times we get this idea of saving for a rainy day. Saving for a rainy day. That is not God's way. That's fear-driven. That's fear. You're afraid of what's going to come. You're not trusting God. You're trusting the bank. You're trusting your bank account. And in this sin-fallen world who needs the gospel desperately, every day is a rainy day. Remember what I told you last week? 157,000 people die every day without Jesus Christ, without even ever hearing the name of Jesus. That should motivate us. That should guide us. The sin-fallen world needs the gospel every day, and every day is a rainy day. We should use, in faith, all of our resources for the glory of God, for the spreading of the gospel. Spiritual wisdom says, trust God. When he says move, move. When he says go, go. When he says stop, stop. When he says turn, turn. Just like those turn directions you get from your phone while you're going somewhere you don't know where you're going. Listen to him and trust him. We need to depend on him more, okay? So spiritual wisdom, that helps solve this problem. But then we see what else they had. They faced this problem, this complaint. This, I'm telling you, I can't make this clear to you. This problem had such potential of being an atom bomb in the church because of the disagreement between Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews that went on outside the walls of this church, that church. But it could have been so bad. But they faced it with spiritual wisdom that came from God. And now they need to execute the solution. So many times we may come up with the right solution, but we never pull it off. We never get there because we just don't trust God enough to be humble enough to accept the, excuse, the, the solution. Spiritual humility, that's point number two in verses five and six. We need spiritual humility to make the solutions work. Follow along as I read this. This proposal pleased the whole company, meaning the whole church, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, or Timon, if you want to say that, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Spiritual wisdom must be exercised with spiritual humility. Spiritual wisdom must be exercised with spiritual humility. Solutions are one thing. Executing them is a completely other thing. And so the proposal pleased the church. They were like, okay, we'll pick seven guys. They accepted it, and then they began to employ it. They did not need to second-guess it. They did not need to revise it. They did not need to quarrel about it. They did not need to have a, a cooling-off period or anything like that. They saw the godly wisdom that was in the solution and how it was derived by the apostles. So they picked seven guys, seven men. You know what? If you look at the names and you know anything about the Roman and, and Jewish world, these names are all Hellenistic men. 
They're all Greek-speaking men on the Hellenistic side of this issue. They were all Hellenistic. They have Greek and Roman names. And that's another dose of, of wisdom and humility right there, is that the church itself decided we're going to pick Greek guy names since they probably know who all the widows are. It's just wisdom. Sometimes we may call it common sense. Now, this is not the deacons selection of deacons as we know as the office now. It was what looked like it, but you know what? That word's never used in this scripture. And so they did get chosen to serve, and it did set a precedent that I think later is developed into deacons, but it's not just the deacons that we, we know of now. But it was, it was smart for them to look and pick seven Greek men. And the Hebrew men accepted that. There, you don't see anything in here about, well, wait a minute, why don't we put a couple of Hebrew guys on there? There's no second discussion. There's no amendments to the, to the, to the, to the motion. They agreed with the church's decision. So they chose Stephen. If you've read your Bible much, you know who Stephen is. He's, he's actually going to talk, be talked about a lot in the rest of chapter 6 and 7. He speaks very boldly. He's a preacher, and he gets eventually, he's the first martyr of the faith and Luke describes him further right here, just saying he's full of faith in the Holy Spirit to kind of foreshadow what's coming in Luke's account. Philip the Evangelist. If you remember the story of the Philip and the eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch, this is the Philip. He was chosen to serve and help take care of the tables. He eventually preaches in Samaria. Then he gets taken down somewhere south of, of Israel, meets up with the eunuch in his chariot, leads him to the Lord, baptizes him, and then he's taken away. Eventually, he settles on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and he has two daughters who are also proclaimers of the gospel. That's all we know about the rest of them. The rest of the other five were never mentioned again in Scripture. You, you can do a Bible search. They're not in the Bible anywhere, but right here. But they were Greek men, Greek Jews, I should say, Greek Jewish men who accepted their role, and they humbly took their part to serve the church. Now, the, one, the last one, Nicholas, he was a convert to Judaism. When it says he was a convert from Antioch, which was a city north, he was a convert to Judaism. That's the only convert they talk about in the New Testament here. He had converted to Judaism, and now he had been saved by Jesus Christ. He took the scenic route to the church, which is good. But his hometown of Antioch is going to come play later in the book of Acts as a, a, the birthplace of missions. And we believe it's also Luke who wrote the book of Acts. We believe it's his hometown. The, the apostles then confirmed the seven. They confirmed them with prayer, and they affirmed them with laying on their hands and accepting them for this role. That's the humility that everybody had. Everybody had this. If anybody had said, oh, no, 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 I don't want this, or I want, it would have been an, a, a firestorm, and it might have blown up in their faces. Humility in the church and then the church members allowed this solution to solve a very potential divisive problem. Humility also kept people from letting their personal agendas and feelings get in the way. Humility was on these seven men to accept a task that seems simple. Why, you want us to just make sure food gets distributed to everybody? But that impacts the church. If you've ever gone hungry, you know how hangry you get, how grumpy you get, they were doing a great ministry service. It reminded me of Joseph in the Old Testament. If you know his story, his brothers sold him into slavery. His other 11 brothers sold him into slavery. And uh, 
He went as a slave, and then eventually, because of false accusations, he became a prisoner. But everything he did in that time from being a slave to being a prisoner, he served in any role he was put in as best he could to anybody that was, he was serving. He wanted to be the best for them. Now, he never lost his ambition to be free. He wanted to be free. You know, he tried to get free a couple of times by his, asking someone to speak up for him. It didn't happen until it was the, the right time. Genesis chapter 41. Um, but his ambition to be free never died. And he served constantly in humility. He never quit being humble and knew who his God was. He never trusted anybody else. He interpreted dreams because of God. And he claimed that. Well, Peter, our favorite apostle, he writes about this humility in 1 Peter 5, verses 5 through 7. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 through 7. He says this to the church he's writing to. All of you clothe yourselves with humility. There it is once. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. There it is two times. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him, because he cares about you. See, this is why we can be humble. Humility is possible because the creator of the universe cares for you. The creator of all creation cares for you. He loves you. You don't have to fight for your rights. You don't. He sent Jesus for you. That's how much he cares. And Jesus never fought for his rights. God takes care of his own. So humble yourselves under his mighty hand. It is the safest place on earth. Trust me, it's the safest place on earth to be humbled under God's hand, to be protected by the creator of the universe. Humility must always put other needs in front, which is what you see this church do. Other people's needs ahead of their own. But Jesus did that best. Go to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. You see it. He became a man. He stepped out of eternity into uh, in the throne and stepped into humanity. And we're messy. Man, we're messy. But he became a man. He, he became God in man form. And he died a very humiliating death. Very humiliating death for us. Yet sometimes we still act so proud of what we maybe have accomplished as a church or what we've accomplished as a Christian. But you know, we are nothing before Christ. Without Christ, we are nothing. Pride goes before the fall, the Bible tells us. Pride elevates the worthless and temporary. Pride is the source of all sin. Any sin that is committed out there, you trace it back, it's probably from a heart of pride, a moment of pride. And as a church, we must all get humble. I mean, that's, that's the only way we're going to survive this is to stay and get humble. We need to accept our roles, whatever they may be in the church. We need to perform our selfless service humbly with gratitude that we actually get to do that. That should be a wonderful thing to remind ourselves. And we must find our peace totally in Jesus Christ, not something else. And without humility, a church is not going to last. And the church will not be any different than the world if we don't have humility. We will serve no lasting purpose as a church if we're not humble. And we will, in the end, tarnish God's glory without humility. Our egos will just smear and tarnish His glory. 
You've heard people say it. I don't want to go to church because there's a bunch of hypocrites down there. I tell them, come join us. We're all hypocrites. But they just, they see sometimes how we act and how we behave and how we treat them and how prideful we are and how we act like we're better than them or we act like we don't do anything wrong, but we do. Oh, we're so sinful too. God's wisdom with their humility, though, allowed this church to handle this problem. And it allowed them to keep their eyes on what was important. And that's what we're going to look at next, the spiritual purpose of the church. The spiritual purpose kept them on track to solve this problem. Look what was happening. Verse 1, the beginning of verse 1. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number. So the church is growing. All through chapter 5, you saw that. The church is growing. Now step down to verse 7. After this problem is solved, so the word of God spread. That's good. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number. That's good. And a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. All this wisdom and humility was possible because they all kept pursuing God's purpose. Souls. That's the whole reason we're here. That's the whole reason we stick around. If God saved us to take us to heaven and he he didn't care for what we did down here, he'd just take us with him. Boom, you're gone. That's not the way he, 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 he said, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That was happening here all along, and it kept their priorities straight. Even after the Ananias and Sapphira thing, where two people dropped dead in the church at different times because they lied to the Holy Spirit. I mean, that scared a lot of people. I'm sure a lot of people were like, what am I gotten myself into? After the the apostles were flogged, whipped, for talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they kept their priorities and their focus. They'd been threatened. They'd been ordered to stop saying anything about Jesus, and they did not stop. They didn't stop talking about Jesus. They never stopped telling. They kept speaking boldly. They prayed to speak boldly, proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to all who would listen, all who would listen. They kept saying it. And see here, even after the issue was resolved, something amazing happened. God's word spread more. That's good, but something even better. Even more people came to be disciples. In Jerusalem, by God's sovereign hand of salvation, more people came to accept Christ and believe the resurrection. But there was something even better than that. Jewish priests got born again. They came to Christ. They were obedient to the faith. These are Levites who are working in the temple. These are descendants of Moses, I mean of Levi, but Moses and Aaron were were Levites. They work in the temple. They handle the sacrifices every day, the atoning sacrifices that bulls and goats and all that stuff and all the blood and everything on the altar for people's sins to be forgiven. They come to faith in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They became Christians. See, when problems are solved God's ways, it just opens so much up. And God will bless that. God will reward that. You know, and it's funny, as I was studying this this week, I realized this thing is bookend. On both ends of this problem, there's a bookend, a frame. It says, the disciples were increasing and the disciples were increasing. The souls were being saved. We should be happy about that. That should be a good thing. Those two clear events 
on both ends of this problem because the first church knew who the main thing was. And they kept the main thing, the main thing. Jesus Christ crucified. Spiritual purpose didn't stop during the issue of overlooked widows. It didn't stop. They didn't say, oh, wait, 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 let's don't, let's don't, let's don't have anybody else baptized. Let's don't lead anybody. They just kept focusing on souls as they solved the problem. Spiritual purpose kept their minds on eternal things. Not what's going on right here, right now, but the fact that souls needed to be saved. And spiritual purpose governed their attitudes, attitudes and behaviors, and their future. And then God's salvation just rolled on. People kept coming to Christ. You remember the story when Peter walked on the water? Jesus said, get out, come on. Peter asked, and he said, come on. So he gets out on the water. His eyes are on Jesus, just perfectly welded on Jesus. He's got Jesus on the mind. You know, he's got nothing else on his mind. He trusted Jesus to be able to stand on the surface of water. Pretty gutsy. But the waves got a little higher, and he took his eyes off of Jesus. His eyes looked at what he could lose. That's what he was worried about. He feared the water more than fearing Jesus. He feared the water more than fearing Jesus. Jesus had told him, come, you can walk on the water. He had taken steps on the water. But when the waves got a little too high for him, he began to be afraid of what he could lose. He lost the spiritual purpose of why he was even on the water, which was to glorify God, to glorify Jesus. And you know what? We can lose that same focus. And we have. So in case any of you forgot what we memorized and studied back in January, let me read it to you again. Acts chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's... Our purpose, brothers and sisters, to be witnesses. Our eyes should always be on that. The problems fade away, take a back seat, get handled correctly when we keep our eyes on the purpose. The insignificant and temporary issues should never distract us. Take our eyes off of Jesus. We are to be witnesses. And you know what? A church will not grow. It will not. It will not be healthy. It will not grow. It always comes down to that action. If you keep your eyes off of the purpose, if you take your eyes off of Jesus, the church will wither up and close. And telling the story of Jesus to those who do not believe, that's what we're always supposed to be doing. And notice I didn't tell you to convince somebody to believe in Jesus. I didn't tell you to, to lead them, to draw them, to make them, to persuade them. That's God's avenue. That's his department. But we are to tell the good news. Sow that seed, as Jesus told us. Tell the good news and let God reap the souls. But we got to keep telling the news. Even if, even if nobody comes for a while, keep telling the good news. Keep the souls in front of us. The harvest only happens after we tell the word. God's made it clear. He's going to only work through our lips. He's going to only work when we speak the word of God to people, when we tell people about Jesus. And he takes that seed of faith that's sowed and he grows it into a believer in Christ when he desires to do that. See, most church problems can be solved. 
Most church problems can be solved by remembering our eternal purpose. Stopping for a second and not worrying about what color the chairs are or what, what kind of music we sing or anything else, what paint is going on the wall. When we remember that it's salvations, souls that need to be witnessed to, that can solve most of our problems. Because heaven, heaven won't care what color the wall is. He won't care how much money is in our bank account. God wants our love and our service of getting the word out to souls. And when we focus on getting the good news any and everywhere we can, God will be happy. You want to make God happy? Tell someone about Jesus. I didn't say convince them. Just tell them about Jesus. Ask them, tell them your testimony. It doesn't matter. Tell them that Jesus saves souls. You get forgiveness from God Almighty. Whatever you need to say, it makes God happy when we tell that story because he's, he's so proud of his son for what he did. Remember, I told you last week, there's 7,000 unreached people groups in the world that don't have any presence of Jesus Christ in those groups. We still have a problem to solve, and it's getting the gospel out to those people. So in summary, just to kind of catch you, close it up. A problem arose in the church. A potential, potential rift came to light, but with wisdom and humility, they solved it. And they survived it. And they continued the massive harvest of souls in Jerusalem. And soon it went to the ends of the earth, which... That's us, by the way. You and I wouldn't have it if they didn't go to the ends of the earth. So what problems this morning have you let get in the way of reaching souls for the gospel? That's a question I ask myself every week, every day. What problems are getting in my way? What's distracting me from the gospel and sharing Jesus Christ? Churches decline and close because they let trivial matters blind them for their, from their real purpose. Beloved, let's remember the main thing. And the main thing is Jesus Christ crucified. That's how souls are saved. And we need to pray right now that it be number one in our life. So we're going to have a time of pastoral prayer right now, a time of silent prayer. You want to come to the front and pray? Come on. And we'll uh, have a time of silent prayer for a few minutes, and then I'll close this out. So let's go to the Lord in prayer.